This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a condition affecting between 1 and 2% of the population. It's a distressing disorder, profoundly interfering with all aspects of daily life. Some with severe cases don't respond to treatment, but that may change. Dr. Philip Mosley is Clinical Research Fellow at QIMR Berghofer, also Neuropsychiatrist at St Andrews, Honorary Senior Fellow at the Queensland Brain Institute and Research Scientist at the CSIRO. And Dr. Philip has completed the first trial in Australia for a new treatment. I'm Claire Blake and you're listening to Body Lab. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. You worked as a young doctor in Manchester before coming to Australia to specialise in psychiatry. Is that a standard journey? Um, I, th- I thought Brisbane had a beach. Uh, got to Brisbane and realised, in fact, that you've got to drive an hour <laughs> north or south to get anywhere near a, a decent beach. So, <laughs> anyway. Did you have your interest in psychiatry prior? Yeah, I was always interested. Well, I was always interested in the, in the brain. Um, that's what got me into medicine. I was really interested in biology at school and did a project on a bloke called Phineas Gage, who was a railroad worker in the United States in the 19th century and ended up giving himself a fairly dramatic brain injury, dealing with some explosives and a metal bar went through his skull and his brain and he had a frontal lobe injury and his personality changed. And that's a, this is a very famous case in, in medicine. And that got me really interested in how the brain supports behavior and decision making. And that took me to medicine. And I thought initially I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. But then, you know, you don't really get to talk to the people that you're working with because they're unconscious. I thought that was the attraction for most surgeons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, A lot of surgeons do have that kind of personality or lack of, I suppose. No, I'm joking. I work with a number of great surgeons. But psychiatry, you you meet the person, you talk to them, you get their life story, you put them in a social, cultural and historical context. You work with them to make them better through various types of therapies, both psychological and medical. So it's, it's really, I feel, the most interesting of all the medical specialties. It sounds typical that you picked one of the most difficult things, OCD, which you're working on. How is that normally treated? OCD is a condition that is typically treated with antidepressant medication and psychological therapy. The problem is that for some people with OCD, their conditions don't remit with these therapies and they continue to have active symptoms that affect their quality of life. Do you think that 1% to 2% is a real reflection of how many people have OCD? Yeah, I think so. It's not the most common of the psychiatric illnesses, but it's not that uncommon either. Do you think there's a lot of people that aren't reporting it though? Yes. So the classic story of someone with OCD is... They develop these bizarre intrusive thoughts in their childhood that may involve thoughts of violence towards family members or intrusive sexual thoughts or intrusive religious blasphemous thoughts and they think to themselves, oh, I must be an evil person, I must be violent, I must be damaged mentally in some way and they're extremely ashamed of these thoughts and they try to put them out of their mind. Of course they don't want to act on these thoughts, they are abhorrent to the person suffering with OCD and they hide away and they don't come to the attention of psychologists or psychiatrists or even family doctors because they don't tell anyone about these symptoms. And often it's a chance occurrence such as reading a book about someone with OCD or watching a television program or sharing their symptoms with their closest support person that leads them to treatment. But 
commonly meet people who have lived with a disorder for 10 to 15 years before actually investigating clinical support for their condition. You think that's because of the stereotype we see with people OCD, that that's just a very narrow symptom range? Partly. I think there's a great community misunderstanding about OCD. Most people say, oh, I'm a bit OCD because I'm a perfectionist and I like my kitchen to be tidy and I chop up all my vegetables into equal size shapes. But that's not OCD, that's being a perfectionist, being obsessive, which is very different. I think the main thing that limits treatment engagement is stigma. Unless you know what OCD is and you you understand that it's a psychiatric illness, going to someone and saying, actually, I'm having these thoughts about stabbing my partner with a knife or I'm having these thoughts that unless I do this bizarre tapping ritual, my mother's going to die of cancer. People just think, oh, I'm going to be locked up in the nuthouse. People are going to think I'm crazy. That's really rough. And as a psychiatrist, do you see the stress and anxiety this causes? How bad does it get? Well, it gets to the stage where people's entire lives are consumed by the disorder. For example, in our study, we had people who were cognitively intact in their midlife, so not aged, not disabled, smart people who were living in nursing homes because their OCD was so severe that they needed support with showering and washing, cleaning their clothes, preparing meals, eating, because they were so consumed by these thoughts and rituals that they just couldn't look after themselves. Can treatment really assist with that? Mm, most definitely. These people are the pointy end of, yep. the, of the spectrum. As I mentioned previously, the most common treatment is antidepressant therapy supplemented with psychological therapy. The antidepressant therapy, the, the method through which it acts in an individual person is reducing the intensity and distress associated with some of the thoughts. And then in the psychological therapy, what people are encouraged to do is to challenge or expose themselves to situations that evoke this anxiety. So for example, if you were someone who had obsessive concerns about being contaminated with germs or a disease or fecal matter, you might gradually develop a, what we call an exposure hierarchy of situations that puts you under an increasing amount of stress. So you might start just by limiting the amount of time that you wash your hands for or the amount of soap that you use. You then might progress to running your hand along a kitchen bench and not washing your hands. Eventually, you might if the treatment is successful, be able to even put your hand into a dirty toilet and touch it and not wash your hands and sit with that anxiety. And the idea behind that is that people's anxiety levels, what we call habituate or normalise if they're exposed to these stresses over a sustained period of time. And people are then being able to get back in control of their anxiety and resume their normal lives. Could you give us a few examples of what might be OCD, which people would be thinking, am I having these crazy thoughts and not have any idea that's OCD? Sure. Um, as I've mentioned, people commonly have thoughts about harming someone that they love, or they might be standing at a train station and have thoughts about pushing someone in front of the train or running over someone in the car. And they might be so distressed by these thoughts that they keep driving round around the block just to make sure and check that they haven't actually run someone over. So they might not even be able to get anywhere in their car because they might just drive round and round in circles checking and checking and checking over and over again. They might have an elaborate routine of checking that taps aren't dripping or that cups in the cupboard are arranged in a certain symmetrical manner. And the thing about OCD is that's often linked to what we call a, a style of thinking called magical thinking where 
people believe that somehow their mundane everyday actions are connected to something awful happening. So if I don't check the tap in a certain way or turn the oven off three times and then spin around and tap my feet on the floor in a certain way, my parents are going to die in a car accident or my dog's going to die or my partner's going to get cancer or some other horrific outcome. Which part of the brain is having this effect on the person? In neuroscience, we don't really think of individual regions of the brain being responsible for a symptom or a disorder. We now think of brain networks, and so it's the integrated action of multiple different brain regions. What we think is going on is that the person with OCD is reacting to these thoughts in an exaggerated way and that their fear response is particularly high when they get these intrusive thoughts. So obsessive thoughts themselves are not uncommon in the general population. It's like hallucinations. Many of us will have hallucinations, visual or auditory, at times of stress or when we're sleep deprived or when we're dropping off to sleep or waking from sleep. And that's not abnormal necessarily. Many of us will have the odd bizarre thought that comes into our head of a occasionally of a violent or sexual or blasphemous or superstitious nature but most of us are able to say oh that was a bit weird Uh, but that's it's just a thought it's not who I am and let's just move on and get on with lives and we forget about it but for some reason people with OCD affix a particularly strong valence or meaning to these thoughts and that's why they're so distressing and intrusive so we think that the the fear network and the appraisal So a network of the brain responsible for assigning uh, fear and and appraising threat is involved in in OCD. Is it something that's genetic or familial? Yep, there's a very strong genetic or very strong heritability. That's why you really see this as as a sort of, in some cases, a neurodevelopmental disorder. So people develop it typically in childhood as they're growing up. And that's when they're least likely to tell someone. Yeah, yeah. Now, you and your colleagues have completed a clinical trial with really impressive results. It's been described as a pacemaker for the brain. Can you tell us about it? Yep. So deep brain stimulation is, is the therapy that we used in this particular clinical trial. Deep brain stimulation is not a new therapy. It's been around for quite a long time, since the mid-90s, and it involves the implantation of electrodes within the brain electrodes that deliver a very small focused field of charge or stimulation to change activity in brain circuits. So it's a precise and focused treatment. It involves neurosurgery where two small holes are drilled in the skull to introduce these electrodes. It involves also a neurologist who guides the neurosurgeon in placing the electrodes in the right place within the brain. Would that be you? I'm a neuropsychiatrist, so I have training in in neurology, but I'm not a board-registered neurologist. The neurologist in this trial was Professor Peter Silburn, who works with me at St Andrews War Memorial Hospital, and the neurosurgeon was Associate Professor Terry Coyne. Both of those individuals have really been pioneers in deep brain stimulation in Australia over the last 20 or so years. DBS has most commonly been used for the treatment of neurological movement disorders like Parkinson's Mm. disease, and it's become an established treatment for this condition, uh, often when medications have failed to um, have effect, and it treats the movement symptoms of Parkinson's disease, tremor, stiffness, rigidity, etc. What we're seeing in psychiatry is now the translation of this established therapy to conditions where all conventional treatment options have failed, Mm. so what we'd call treatment refractory 
and OCD has been the most widely studied condition for which DBS has been used. That said, only approximately 350 people worldwide in the entire history of this treatment have ever been treated with DBS. Our trial was the first placebo or sham controlled randomized trial to take place in Australasia. We felt that including a placebo arm was very important because, as we know, in psychiatry and in all of medicine, the placebo effect can be quite strong, especially in therapies that involve a high technological input. And we wanted to make sure the effects we were seeing were were real and not attributable to the placebo effect. And we found that this therapy, consistent with other randomized placebo-controlled trials that have been conducted elsewhere at leading centers in the world, was an effective treatment for these treatment, otherwise treatment-refractory individuals. Do you test that while they're in surgery? So DBS for psychiatry is a therapy that evolves over months. So the structure of our trial was individuals were assessed as having treatment-refractory OCD by our team. They then were approved by an independent review tribunal, which is the law here in Queensland, Australia, to make sure that they met all the entry criteria for the study and also were able to give their consent freely and voluntarily. They then were implanted with the DBS device and recovered for a month, so nothing happened. And then for three months, there was this double-blind sham-controlled phase where half the participants were turned on and half the participants were left switched off. The participant didn't know and the investigators didn't know who was on or off. And we assessed their response through this period. And then at four months post-operatively, everybody was turned on and the trial was open. So everyone knew that they were on and there was full disclosure about what was happening with the DBS. Back to where it gets put in, you put the electrodes in the brain and Mm. at the other end, is Mm. there a battery? Where does that go? Yeah, there's a battery that sits in the patient's chest wall like a pacemaker. And that's where the term brain pacemaker comes from because it's about the same size as a pacemaker. Looks like a pacemaker, but the leads don't go to the heart, the leads go to the brain. Those people who were not in the placebo must have known very early. DBS for psychiatry is a treatment that evolves slowly, so you don't just turn it on and the person's better. It's In that sense, it does differ for DBS for neuro, some neurological conditions. Yeah, like the Parkinson's treatment, they get up and walk out and it's immediate. Yes, yes, it is. well, it is much quicker. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say immediate because there's still a degree of tuning of the device right. that, that goes on. I think when you sometimes when you see DBS on the TV, you, it's made to look like it's some kind of lazarine recovery. Guilty. It's a little bit more complicated than that. The response of psychiatric symptoms to DBS seems to evolve over the timescale of months rather than hours or days or weeks. So what we saw in our participants was a gradual reduction in obsessive symptoms over the over the months following DBS implantation. So the way this worked in practice was that people was, began to say to us, well, you know, I don't know if I'm on or off, but my thoughts, they just seem a little bit less distressing. I'm not tearful all the time anymore, and i am not got this awful panicky feeling in my chest all the time. You know, I might be able to do a little bit more with my day. I might, I might actually be able to wash my hands a little bit less or go out to the shops by myself, and gradually they were able to get control over their own life. And this was supplemented in our trial by the addition of psychological therapy, this exposure and response prevention psychotherapy that we introduced once everybody in the trial had had their devices turned on. And that really catalyzed the improvement that we were seeing in our participants. must be incredibly rewarding as a neuropsychiatrist to witness that. Yeah, it's pretty much 
one of the best things you can do with medicine is to treat someone who whose life was abysmal and make their life livable again. That's just what that's why you do what you do, I guess. So what were the results? The first thing was we saw a statistically significant benefit over of active stimulation over sham stimulation, which was important for the science. From a participant perspective, we saw seven out of our nine participants show clinically significant levels of response, and that was assessed with the, what we call the gold standard methods of assessing response to, to treatment in, in obsessive compulsive disorder, a particular scale called the Yale-Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. In terms of what it meant for individuals, participants in their day-to-day life, I mentioned the story of the person who was living in a nursing home because he needed such intensive support with everyday activities of daily life. He found that he was much less tormented by his OCD and was now able to care for himself to a much greater degree. So he's now moved out of the nursing home and is living independently with some assistance from an NGO, non-governmental organisation. Apart from anything else, that's a huge benefit to the taxpayer, number one. And number two, it's an enormous relief to his family and to him because he can do what he likes. Previously, he he was involved in the in the COVID lockdowns that affected all nursing homes. So he was stuck inside with a bunch of people 40 plus years older than him and just really, really suffering. Another gentleman was a very talented surfer in his youth, but his OCD prevented him from taking that anywhere. And he was working half an hour a week in a surf shop doped up to the eyeballs with sedating medication just to function. He's now really a a star. He's married his partner. He's got two kids running his own business. His life has been absolutely transformed by this therapy. And then does it stay in forever, that implant? Yeah, it does. Uh, So this is a a chronic treatment that needs to continue, as far as we are aware, lifelong for these people. This is a treatment that is adjustable, reversible, no medication side effects. It must be really appealing for those people who have the disorder. Yes, that's true. It is resource intensive though, so it's, it will never be a first line therapy for people with, with OCD. You need to have neurosurgery, you need to have a very skilled multidisciplinary team. I'm just one small cog in a very large machine of this trial. We had a neurosurgeon and neurologist there was another psychiatrist involved, there were electrophysiologists, psychologists, statisticians, computer scientists, and software engineers, hardware engineers. This was a, an enormous undertaking. And look, there are risks. It's neurosurgery. Mm. And one of the participants in our trial, unfortunately, had an infection of her device. She recovered, but the device had to be removed, unfortunately. So obviously she didn't she didn't have any enduring benefit from this treatment. So I wouldn't want to paint an overly rosy picture saying that, you know, we should be replacing medications with this therapy. What I do think, though, is that this now gives hope to the people who have this awful treatment refractory and not illness responding to and not first. responding to conventional therapies. I know, Phil, that you take every opportunity to thank your trial participants. How hard was this to sell to patients? We're going to put implants into your brain while you're awake. You might get a placebo. Oh, well, not difficult at all because these were people who were living thoroughly miserable lives dominated by their OCD and who'd, who had tried often innumerable medical and psychological therapies. So these, you know, they've tried 10 to 15 antidepressant medications, 
five or six antipsychotic medications, mood stabilizing medications, sedating medications, electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation. They'd had inpatient residential courses of psychological therapy at, at an intensive level. They had thrown everything at this disorder for the last 30 years and had seen no enduring benefits. So they were very willing to participate in the trial, although some of them understood that they would have a placebo for the first few months of the trial, we obviously ensure that all participants ended up receiving active treatment. So Mm. they knew that there was only going to be a brief delay. Ideally, in DBS for psychiatry, people who study these conditions say that the blinded phase should should really be ideally be as long as possible to maximise the statistical significance significance and effect size of the difference you've seen between active and sham treatment. The problem with that is that you're running trials here with human participants who are suffering. So you have to trade off the p-values in your paper and Mm. perhaps even what journal you get the paper published in with actually doing the right thing by your participants. So that's why we included only a three-month blinded phase, which actually in these delayed onset trial designs is actually quite short. It's a good time to remind you this information is general in nature. For personal advice, your own health professional is always the best choice. Deep brain stimulation has been used for a while, and you mentioned Parkinson's. Do you see any possibilities for other areas of psychiatry or even wider use? Mm -hmm. Well, deep brain stimulation in our centre is used for a range of movement disorders, including dystonia, essential tremor, post-stroke spasticity, Tourette's syndrome. Amongst the neurological conditions, there is a reasonably wide, wide use of this therapy for psychiatry. Obsessive compulsive disorder we feel is gathering more and more evidence around the world from trials like ours and maybe it will become a therapy that is accessible to those with severe illnesses who are carefully selected outside of purely a trial scenario. In terms of further trials, I think depression has always been a major focus of individuals working in this field because there are many people with severe treatment refractory depressive conditions who are suffering Depression has been a more difficult condition to address more globally with DBS. There have been some very promising results from open trials, but often when these conditions are examined in double-blind, randomised, controlled trials, the difference between active and sham stimulation hasn't been as pronounced or has not been evident at at all. That's complex and, and there's lots of work being done on why that might be and how to perhaps improve the targeting of the electrodes and the selection of the participants to optimise the response for those people who are suffering. And that's something that we'd like to work towards as well, really looking at the use of of DBS or other forms of neuromodulation for treatment-resistant depression because there's such an enormous community need. You're involved in a DBS study for anorexia as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that trial is still in the the nascent stages and uh, that's a study that's being led by the Queensland Brain Institute in collaboration with the Queensland uh, Eating Disorders Service at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. I imagine a lot of people will be very interested in following that closely. Yep. So anorexia nervosa is a, is a terrible mental illness that has the highest mortality of any psychiatric condition. And in this trial, we are looking to treat individuals who have what we call severe and enduring anorexia nervosa. So a similar paradigm to treatment refractory OCD. They've, they've tried all the established evidence-based therapies such as psychotherapy and day patient therapy and inpatient therapy and have 
um, unfortunately failed to show consistent response to those therapies and, and are really suffering with an extremely low body weight and the medical complications that, that come with uh, long-standing anorexia nervosa. You've got quite a large body of work on Tourette's as well. Is that in any way linked with OCD? It is. People with Tourette's commonly have OCD and people with OCD commonly have tics. From a neurological perspective or a neuroscientific perspective, we both consider them to be disorders of the basal ganglia of the brain. And so the way I explain it to people is that we're really looking at circuits in the brain here that are lying in very close proximity to each other. So if you have disruption in in one circuit, it's quite common for that disruption to also be present in a nearby circuit. So if you've got disruption in your tick circuit, you may have disruption in in your obsessive compulsive circuit Mm. as well. A lot of people will move on from ticks and not all ticks grow on yes. Tourette's. Yes. So Tourette's is defined as the enduring presence of motor and phonic or vocal ticks. There are a lot of people with Tourette's who have it in their childhood and adolescence and it burns out in early adulthood and they're left with just a few isolated grunts or sniffs or coughs or eye blinking movements that don't cause any long lasting disability the people that I see generally have a more severe type of Tourette's that causes a lot of disruption in childhood with bullying or impaired performance at school and then unfortunately persists into to adulthood and affects people's ability to gain employment or do further studies or have relationships. I treat these individuals with medication and also as part of the deep brain stimulation team with Professor Silburn and Coyne. You're also studying DBS for Tourette's. Yes, we have an active deep brain stimulation program for Tourette's syndrome and this is a treatment modality that is an established therapy that is reimbursed by the federal government and doesn't need to be undertaken as part of a a clinical trial. Well there's a growing list of people who are following your work with a great deal of interest. If you're interested in finding out more about Dr Philip Mosley's impressive work or any of our research go to qimrberghoffer.edu Thank you so much, Dr. Phil. Pleasure. Thanks for being interested in what we do.